Awesome. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody. Hey, it was nice to see blue skies this morning, right? I was so happy. I woke up and I told my family, I was like, there's blue skies, there's blue skies. The sky is blue, I can see it. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're praying for those fires, really praying for rain, right? Praying for everybody who's over there. Um, we, my kids, they go to a charter school in Lowell. So we were literally in Lowell on Thursday. And then um, I think all the smoke blew in on Friday. And I saw pictures of the exact same place we had just driven. It was so crazy. Um, but this morning, I want to take a few minutes and talk to you guys about our joy groups. Joy groups are fall joy groups that are launching. And so right now, uh, you can go back to the table when you leave today at, in the lobby there. And you can look at the brochure and see all the joy groups that are going to be starting. You have a few weeks to look at the brochure and decide which, which group you want to be part of. And then those, um, most of them will start the first week of October. You know, about, um, about a month ago, three weeks, a month ago, no idea how long really, but I was at youth camp and there was 500 people, about 500 people also there, mostly teens, middle schoolers, uh, high schoolers, young adults. And at this youth camp, they have all these activities that, you know, I guess are for teens. I don't know. There's not a lot of video games. I think that would be the activity for teens. But they have volleyball, they have gaga ball, they have carpet ball, they have a, a water slide, they have inner tubes that the kids can go down on creeks. They have um, a big giant swing that's my personal favorite. And then they also have a rock climbing wall. Well, when we first got to the camp, um, you, I saw the rock climbing wall and I thought, you know, I think I'm going to try to go up that rock climbing wall. And, uh, you know, it's probably been at least 10 years since I've ever done a rock climbing wall. But it was one of those things that I thought, I want to see if I can still do it. I know you guys might think, well, you work out a lot. No, I don't. So I actually have no upper body strength whatsoever. And that was my largest concern about going up the rock climbing wall. I thought, Bethany, dearest, you have no arm strength. And I think that's the main thing you need. So I thought, I just want to see. I just want to see if I can go up this wall. So one of the afternoons, all of the teens were all playing this game. And this, I, this is what I needed. This was my strategy. I'm going to wait until the rock climbing wall is open and the teens are already doing something. That way I do not have an audience. That's what I mostly didn't want, was any sort of audience watching me go up a rock climbing wall. And so, you know, it happened. It was a perfect storm. The, the teens were all occupied, but they had already opened the wall. So I ran out there, you know, to go up the rock climbing wall. And I'm sitting there waiting. And the guy's like, you're going to go up? And I'm like, yeah, is that okay? And um, so he's like, I was like, is there an age limit? What's going on here? But, you know, I get in the harness, and I start to go up the rock climbing wall. If you get to the very top, there's a string you pull, and you get to ring the bell, right? Well, that's pretty high hopes for me at this point at the bottom of the wall. I'm thinking, let's, we're just going to see what happens. I'm, I'm going for not getting bruised. This is my main goal. So I start going up the wall, and it's going pretty well, um, and I'm going okay, and I'm doing it, right? Well, then I get about three-quarters of the way up the rock wall. And at this point, you know, I've got my right hand in a rock. It's, it's not a rock. And then my left hand on a rock, you know, my right foot, my left foot, and I'm stuck. I, I don't know where else to go. The next place the next handhold is too far away for my hand to get to it. I don't have enough leverage to get to the next place. So I'm kind of, you know, you know, like Spider-Man there, and I'm trying to figure it out, and I'm just like, okay, I don't think I'm going to make it, and so I decide, you know, I think that's about it. This is good. I got up 
three quarters of the way, and that's great. Good enough for me. And um, my main goal, remember, is I don't want to be bruised. So I don't want to try to get it, get up there, and then fall and, you know, hit all the things on the way and just all of those things. So I'm thinking, okay, I think I'm done. So I kind of turn my head a little bit to the guy who's, you know, spotting you, and, he, and I go, hey, I, I can't. I can't go any higher. I don't know what to do. I think I'm done, right? Well, I didn't know while I was, had my back turned going up this wall that the teens had finished their uh, activity. So now there was qu- quite a bit of a row of teens waiting in line for this old lady. They're like, who let her get on the wall, right? But, so they're behind me, so I don't know that, right? But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm telling the guy, yeah, I think I'm done. I don't know what else to do here. And he didn't say anything back to me, which I found rude. He should have told me the secret or something. Well, all of a sudden, um, you know, I'm ready to be done. All of a sudden, I hear from behind me, you can do it, Bethany. Bethany, don't give up. You're almost there. You can't give up. You got to ring that bell. And I'm like, oh, no. And I turn, you know, trying not to fall, and I realize there's a whole line of teenagers there. And they're cheering me on. And I'm thinking, oh, man, what do I look like from here? I hope it's okay. Embarrassment, you know, is flooding, flooding through me. And, but in that moment, I'm thinking, now I cannot give up. I can't go back down. I can't have, like, the walk of shame. I have to figure this out. And they're just there. They're just yelling and cheering me on. You got this. You can do it. Don't give up. You got to ring that bell. You're going to ring that bell. You got this. And I'm like, okay, I got, I got to figure out how I got this, you know. And so finally, I don't know what happened, but I figured it out. I got to the top. I rang the bell. It was awesome, right? Well, you might wonder what this has to do with joy groups. And now you will find out. Every single one of us has dreams and goals and things we want to do with our life. All of us have, um, you know, even ideas, right? God, if you, if you could use me to do this, if I could get to the top of that, that wall, or just in our normal Christian walk, right? God, I want to be used by you. I want to follow you all my life. I want to be a Christian my whole life. That's what that, that um, you know, wall kind of represents. And every single one of us comes to points in our life where we're three quarters of the way. We haven't really got there. And we're like, okay, that's far enough. It's high enough. It's getting too hard. I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to fall. I don't want to embarrass myself. This is getting too difficult. I don't have the upper body strength to keep going. And every single one of us needs a group around us who says, you got this. You're almost there. You got to ring that bell. Don't give up. You got this. And for us here at Joy Church, that's called joy groups. We have these joy groups. We set them up for you so that you can have a community that comes around you, that in those moments in life where you think, I'm done. Following Jesus, I thought it was going to be easy. It's too hard right? Or that dream that God gave me, it's too far away. It's never going to happen. That you would have people around you that say, don't give up. You got this. I believe in your dream. Even if you don't believe in the dream right now, I believe in the dream for you. You got this. Every single one of us needs that community. A new study just came out that said that 36% of all Americans feel serious loneliness, And that's what we hear all the time right now, right? We're the most isolated society that we've ever been, but the most serious loneliness. And then it it appears, you know, no one would have guessed this, but it appears to have increased substantially since the global pandemic. They say that 61% of that 36% is young adults and 51% is young mothers. 
the serious uh, loneliness actually causes great health problems. They say it's one of the key things that causes crazy health problems like heart disease. You guys were like, I thought it was bacon. No, maybe it's both. Okay, but heart disease, diabetes, these serious diseases, it actually can come back down to just having serious loneliness. And maybe you're in this room and you're like, I'm that 36%. I'm that 61%. I'm that 56%. We have here for you groups that we you have that we want you to be part of. We don't want you to be alone. We don't want you to be lonely. And maybe you say, oh yeah, but church groups, they're contrived. Every community you're part of is contrived besides your family, right? That's the, and that's the one none of you guys want to be part of. I'm just kidding. But think about it. If you're friends with your coworkers, that's a contrived group. You wouldn't have picked them out. If you're friends with your neighbors, it's not like you bought, most of us, it's not like we bought our house because of our neighbors. Most of us bought our house in spite of our neighbors, right? This is another joke. Whatever it is, but you, so the, we set these up for you. And so I really encourage you to find one that works for you. Grab the brochure, see what's inside. We have awesome groups. We have a financial peace group that's starting up. I can't um, recommend that one enough. You know, if you have any, if you have money, if you've ever liked to have money, if you would like to have money, I, I recommend Financial Peace University to you. We have groups that happen all the way to Cottage Grove, Springfield, Eugene. They're happening all over the place. We have two women's Bible studies starting up with the Lisa Turkhurst study. Those are going to be awesome. We have our young, or not our young moms, any moms group that happens um, every other Thursday. That's an awesome group. So if you're part of that 50 1% of mothers with young children who's lonely, man, get, be part of a group. I really encourage you, don't just be lonely and not do something about it. If you say, but I'm introverted, it's okay. There's lots of introverted leaders. There's lots of introverted people who want to invite you into their home or want you to invite you into a public place, and they want you to find friends. They want you to find community. So I really encourage you, right? How many of you guys say, I'm going to do it? I'm going to sign up for a group. I know, you guys, some of you guys are lying. That's okay. It makes me feel better. Ah, oh, Justin. Oh, okay. But I really encourage you, sign up for a group. And just because you're signing up for it doesn't mean you're committing to it. So sign up for a few, right? And just tell when the leader contacts you and says, hey, I saw you sign up for my group. You can tell them, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to give you a chance. Someone invited me something to something recently. And they said, hey, do you want to come to this fun thing? And I said, I will come to one and see if it's fun. I really did say that. I said, I'm not going to commit because it might not be fun. I've been to a lot of things that aren't, right? But I really encourage you guys, sign up for a joy group. It will change your life. You know, we're starting a new series this morning. God has a name. We're really excited for it. This series is based on a book by John Mark Comer. So as we go through this series, if you would like to know more, if you're like, I am so intelligent, and I would love to read the book. Man, get the book, read it. It's so good. I absolutely guarantee that it's going to um, be more clear than anything that I say today. But it's an excellent book. God has a name. How many of you guys um, work at all in the school system? Anybody? School system? You guys, these are the people you need to give like a gift card to this week. Well, the kids, the kids started school this week, and so in honor of that, I thought I would show what teachers say are the strangest names um, they've ever encountered at school. So go ahead and put the first one up for me. I thought this was pronounced ABCD, and then uh, Melody, she told me, no, it's, okay, I'm not going to get it right. Absidy, Absidy. Wow, Absidy. Okay, let's go to the next one. Gregory. I love it. Gregory. 
Oh, Caitlin. You guys didn't guess that one, huh? Caitlin. Cameron. Okay, this one. This one's crazy. This is Noel. Noel. It's a good one. Miles, thank you. Who said it? Kelly, thank you, Kelly. I was like, I forgot how to pronounce this one. It looks crazy. I don't know. It's Miles, Miles. Um, um, aren't those great? No, those are not great. You know, in ancient times, uh, like when you read the Bible, when you read the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, names really mattered. In that kind of culture, your name was like your autobiography. It really had a really significant importance to your life. For example, the name Jacob, uh, sorry to pick on you. This is why Jake goes by Jake instead of Jacob. But the name Jacob in the Bible, he's in the Old Testament. He, that name literally means heel catcher, which is kind of like deceiver. And throughout his life, he is deceiving, right? He's just always kind of not telling the truth, kind of just tricking people. And then he comes to a point in his life where he has this face-to-face encounter with an angel, and the angel says, hey, I'm changing your name. You're no longer going to be Jacob. You're going to be Israel and changes his name. And that's why we see this throughout the Bible. We see that, that Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. Simon meant that it was like this, this reed that would just, you know, kind of go with the wind. And so when Jesus meets Simon, he says, your name is not going to be Simon anymore. It's going to be Peter. Or we see this with Saul, who becomes Paul. Why? Because when someone was naming their child, it was like they were positioning their destiny. And we don't have that anymore, right? We just pick names because we like them. Uh, every single one of our kids, when I was pregnant with our kids, we, Jake and I would be talking about, what, is, what are we going to name this child? Any name that I chose, Jake said, that's a fad name. And I was like, what does that even mean? And he said, a fad name, it's not, it's not a good name. It's not going to be cool for very long. You don't want to pick a cool name, right? And I was like, it's ironic to me that every name I pick happens to be a fad name. Seems a bit subjective. <laughs> but all the names you pick are not fad names. Well, interestingly enough, you know, we, we named our kids Evelyn, Jack, and Penelope. We had no idea that those now are like the most popular names of kids their age. So somehow we slipped into the fad names Anyways, but, but we didn't pick their names based on um, an autobiography. I think Evelyn means bird. You know, we weren't like, this would be a bird that flies. And if you did that, that is awesome. I think that is so amazing. But we didn't do that. Um, we just were not quite that deep. But that is the way that names were chosen back then. And did you know that God has a name? You see, in the Old Testament, when, he, when the Genesis, when it begins, it just talks about God. God is not a name. God is a thing, right? God is a noun. There could be other gods. And so we see when the creator of the universe starts here in Genesis, it just says God. But there could be other gods. Or we hear the word Lord, but there could be other lords. But our God actually has a name. And this is important. Because what you think about God is so important. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important 
thing about us. And I don't know what comes to mind when you think about God. Maybe you think of someone who's far off that you don't know. Or maybe you think of someone who can't be known. Maybe you think of someone who, you know, is, it's, it's, you never quite understand. It seems like sometimes he's helpful and sometimes he's not. But every single one of us has a theology. A theology means what you believe about God. So even if you're, you're here in this room and you say, well, I'm an atheist, so I don't. Well, that is a theology. An atheist has things they think about God. They usually don't like him, right? <laughs> but we all have things that we think about God. We all, every single one of us, has a theology. This is really important because what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Scott McKnight is a professor in Chicago, and he does a survey at the beginning of his, uh, you know, classes. He does this survey, and one side of the page is all about me, right? So the students, they fill it out all about them. Some of you guys probably did this this week at school, or your kids brought home these papers from school, all about me. And they, you know, pizza is my favorite. Blue is my favorite. I'm going to be an astronaut, whatever it is. And then on the other side of the paper, it's all about Jesus. Well, and so they, they answer all of these questions about who is Jesus. Well, Scott McKnight said 90% of the time, the answers are the same on the front and the back. So Jesus is just like me, right? That's how these people think. We have a human bent to make God in our own image. So when we think about God, usually he agrees with everything I agree with. Usually he thinks all the same thoughts I do. Usually he votes all the same ways I vote. Usually when I am justified in my anger, he also would be justified in his anger, right? Usually any sort of argument I had, he sided with me. I was right all along, right? We want to make God into our own image. We want a God who is controllable. And the truth is, it's because we want to be God. We want to have all the right answers. We want everyone to agree with us. We don't want an authority on what is right and wrong. We want to be the authority on what is right or wrong. But the real true God is anything but controllable. And we don't get to determine what he's like. This reminds me of the, the Narnia quote. If you guys have read Narnia, then you already know what I'm going to say. But it's when, you know, the beavers are talking about Aslan. And Aslan is a representation in this book of God. And so they're telling the little kids about Aslan. And then Susan is getting nervous because Aslan is a lion. And uh, Susan's a little girl. And she says, oh, you know, is he, is he safe? And the beaver says, oh, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what C.S. Lewis was really getting to, that no, our God is not controllable, but he's good. He's good. He is the authority. We don't get to decide what is right or wrong. Our opinion really doesn't matter. It's his opinion that matters. He is the authority. The starting point of all theology is we don't know what God is like, but we can learn. And this is so encouraging for me. I hope it's encouraging for you that none of us, we don't know what God is like, but we can learn. 
We can learn what he is like. This is what Moses is doing in Exodus. And that's, this whole series is really going to base on these couple verses that um, I'm going to read to you in just a moment. But Moses is this man. He was born as an Egyptian slave. Um, so all of the, the Hebrew, the Israelite people, they are all slaves in Egypt. And so at this point, the, um, the Pharaoh has decided, hey, we're killing all the, the males, all the Egyptian males. There's too many. I'm sorry, not Egyptian. All the Hebrew males. There's too many of them, and so as soon as a baby boy is born, just kill them. Well, Moses' mom, she does not kill her son. She hides him until she can't hide him anymore, and then, you know, through faith, somehow, they push him down the Nile. This is better for you. Go off on the Nile here. We tried to do that with our kids, but they just got out of the basket and came back, and we're like, what are you guys doing? Your raft is terrible. No, I'm just teasing. Um, but he, Moses is actually rescued. He's rescued by one of the Egyptians, and he's raised as an Egyptian. And then at some point, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he kills that Egyptian. Then he's scared for his life, so he runs away into the wilderness. And he ends up meeting this family, Jethro, and he marries one of uh, Jethro's daughters. He learns how to be a shepherd. And then at some point, we're going to uh, read more about that in just a minute, but at some point, he's a shepherd in the wilderness. He sees a burning bush, a bush, you know, that is burning but does not get consumed. And he stops. He notices it. Why is this bush not burning up? It's burning, but it's not burning up. And he stops, and that's when he has his first encounter with God. And God speaks to him, and God tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt, and you are going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then we know the rest of the story, right? There's ten plagues. The plagues are bizarre. We heard a hilarious comedian, Jim Gaffigan, talking about that it's so funny that they started with turning all the water to blood. And then the next scariest thing was tons of frogs. Like, as if that was scarier than all the water being blood, you know. But, you know, whatever. Maybe they were very scared of frogs. And then eventually the... Um, Egyptians let the people go, the Israelites go, and so now there are these people that are wandering through the wilderness. They're trying to get to a promised land. God told them, I'm going to lead you to a promised land. He guides them miraculously by a cloud during the day and fire by night. It's pretty amazing, right? And then he, they're leading their way through. He gives them rules. You see, these people, they have been slaves under the Egyptian for four, 400 years, so they think like slaves. So God keeps giving them rules, trying to get them to think like free people, not like slaves anymore. And the, the main rules that he gives them are the Ten Commandments. And so this is what happens. God is saying, it says actually in Exodus that Moses has a different relationship with God than anyone else because he speaks to God face to face. And so he's talking to God, and he's telling God, God, you know, we're going to this promised land, but I don't want to go anywhere unless you go with us. And God's saying, okay, yeah, I'm going with you. I'm going to lead you. And then Moses says, God, I want to see you. I want to know what you're like. Actually, what the, what the Hebrew, when you um, translate it, that's really what he was saying is, I want to know what you are like. And God says to him, tomorrow, climb Mount Sinai, and I'm going to have my glory pass in front of you. And he says, but you can't look at my face, because if anyone looks at my face, he will die. You guys are like, what? I don't know either, okay? And then when this happens, Moses climbs the mountain, and then we're going to see this in Exodus 34. He climbs the mountain, and then his glory passes in front of Moses, and this is what, what God says, starting in verse 6. It says, the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, 
the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. These two verses are actually the most quoted verses throughout the Bible. They get quoted the most inside of the Bible. And we don't talk about them a lot in in our Christian circles, but in Judaism, these are very important verses. They go back to them over and over and over because it's significant. This is God calling out and saying who he is. If you asked me, Bethany, what, what is Penny like? Penny is our youngest daughter. What is Penny like? Us as humans, we, we always describe God in a very strange way. Like if I described, you said, what is Penny like? I wouldn't be like brown hair, four feet. It's straight, her hair. Uh, greenish blue eyes. You'd be like, what? Are you her mother or her doctor? Right? You'd be like, what is going on? No, I'd be like, whoa, Penny. Penny is vivacious. Right? She has an indomitable spirit. Man, she's a live wire. Watch out. She's got a wicked sense of humor. Emphasis on wicked. Right? I would tell you all about her. But when someone asks us about God, we always start with these characteristics. We're like, ah, he's uh, omnipotent, omnipresent. All all starts with the O's. Um, You know, he has a, I can't think of anymore, omniscient. You guys are like, that's never not how I describe God. Well, if you, had, if you go to Bible college, that's how you end up describing God. We describe these characteristics. But I, what is so powerful about these, these two verses is this is God describing himself. And that's why over the next month we're going to dive into these two verses. This is how God says, this is who I am. Moses said, what are you like? And God is saying, this is what I am like. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations. I'm so excited that Jake is going to be preaching on those verses. If you look ahead and you're like, what? (laughs) This looks a bit negative. You're going to have a great time with that. This (laughs) This is God describing himself. He starts with his name. Yahweh. This is actually the first name that we hear. So Genesis, you know, we don't really hear God's name. He reveals himself to Abraham. And then he doesn't see, he just says, I'm God. And then we, from then on, know him as the God of Abraham. So throughout the Old Testament, you'll hear people, they'll be like, what God do you serve? The God of Abraham, and then the God of Isaac, and then the God of Jacob. That's how we know him, is the God of these people. But this is the first time that he's saying, actually, my name is is Yahweh. If we go back to Exodus 3, this is when, when he tells Moses that his name is Yahweh. And this is at the burning bush moment, right? The bush that isn't burning up. And, he, and God is telling Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt. you got to free my people. And Moses is telling him all the reasons why this is a bad job for him. How many of you guys have ever done that? Pretty much anything God ever has asked me to do, I've tried to tell him why it's a bad job for me. And why he should choose, you know, Kelly or he should choose Shirley, right? You should choose somebody else to do this, God. And that's what Moses is doing. And God just keeps, you know, being like, no, this is, you're going to do it. You got it. You got it, man. Here you go. And he's like, okay. And finally, Moses says, what do I tell him? 
What do I tell the Egyptians if they ask who you are, what God you are? Because back then, there's a lot of gods. So Moses is saying, what, who, what do I tell them? In Exodus 3, 14 and 15, says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. This is what God reveals. He says my name is Yahweh. If you want to put up those letters, it, it looks like in the ancient Hebrew, this is actually what it looks like. In ancient Hebrew, there aren't any vowels. Isn't that nice? It's just like Hungarian. When I was in Hungary, I was like, hmm, S-K-Y-L-M-P-Q-S-R. Hmm, can't pronounce it. No vowels. And that's exactly how ancient Hebrew was. There's no vowels. And so in, in the ancient text, this is what it would say. Y-H-W-H. And you, some of you guys who are teachers are like, oh, no, not again. Not again. I can't pronounce it. But actually, we don't even know specifically how it's pronounced. But all ancient scholars, they agree this is most likely how it's pronounced is this word Yahweh. And this is when, and throughout your Bible, it's kind of a sad thing. Throughout your Bible, it'll always say Lord whenever the ancient text said Yahweh, which is kind of sad because Lord could mean anything. But Yahweh is a name. Yahweh is the name that God says, this is my name. Yahweh. And Yahweh is such a beautiful thing. It means I am what I am. But it also can mean I will be what I will be or I am what I will be. What God is saying in this moment to Moses is who I am right now is who I will always be. I am the same today, yesterday, and forever. If you ever, you know, hear people talking about how the God of the Old Testament, I, I'm not okay with him, but Jesus, I'm okay with. It's the same exact person. Because he said, who I am right now is who I will always be. And that's what makes this verse in, in uh, chapter 34, that's what makes this so powerful, in my opinion. It says in, in 34, verse 6, Yahweh He's yelling this. That's how I imagine it, right? Yahweh, he's yelling his name. The Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. That's the first way that he's describing himself. Today, I am full of compassion and mercy. And tomorrow, I will be full of compassion and mercy. And forever, I will be full of compassion and mercy. Who I am right now is who I will always be. What a beautiful promise for you and I. That this God that we serve, that this God that, that you can choose today if you don't know him, that this God is full of compassion and mercy. He's consistent. God is who he is. The whole entire Bible, if you zoom out, right, you see the whole macro version. The whole point of it is God came to us. God came to us. God came for us. God wants to know you, and God wants you to know him. I'm not consistent. I could say, who's Bethany? Well, you know, I, I want Bethany to be kind. Does that mean that I'm always kind? No. I want Bethany to, to be nice. Does that mean I'm always nice? No. I want Bethany to be faithful. Does that mean that I'm always faithful? No. But God 
He, what he says he is, he will always be. He is consistent. And maybe you're in this room today, and you, you, you say, I, compassionate, merciful. Maybe you've stayed far away from God because you feel like a kind of person who doesn't, doesn't deserve mercy. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it's been. God can't forgive the things that I've done. No, this is what he yelled on that mountain, on Mount Sinai, that he is the God of mercy. And he has mercy for you. The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. So on those days that we think, that's it, I messed up too much, too far away. There's no coming back from this. God is there yelling, I'm the God of mercy. Or maybe you've been through really hard things in your life. And you think nobody understands, nobody knows me. God was there yelling, I am the God of compassion. And that's what we see in the New Testament. Jesus would look at crowds. He'd have other jobs to do, other things he needed to focus on. And yet it consistently said he was moved with compassion. Moved with it. That it literally drew him. The people seeing them hurt, seeing them needing help, seeing them being sheep without a shepherd. It moved him to the crowds. That's who God is. He sees you where you're at today, and he moves towards you. He moves towards you. Whatever's going on in your life, what I want you to leave today is knowing that God is consistent, and he's full of compassion and mercy for you. If everyone would just bow your head and close your eyes this morning. We've been talking about God, but maybe you're in this room and you say, I don't know him. I was telling you how the, the whole macro version of the Bible is that God has come to us, that he wants to know you. It's such a beautiful thing that that's what Jesus was doing for every single one of us, was creating a way that we could have a personal relationship with this God, that he not only knows you, but he wants to be your friend. And if you're in this room and you say, I don't know him, we want to give you an opportunity to, to know him. It says in the Bible that if we confess in our heart that Jesus is Lord, and I'm sorry, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God rose him from the dead, that we can be saved. It's as simple as that. It's you saying Jesus is God. He conquered death in the grave for me, and I'm turning over my life over to him. So if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, would you just lift up your hand? We want to pray with you this morning. No one's looking around. No one's going to see. It's just a way for you to put your faith in Jesus, to say, hey, I'm making this decision today to follow after Jesus. In just a moment, we're all going to pray a prayer together. It's not, you know, a magic prayer. It's just a way for you to verbalize that you're putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. So let's repeat after me, everybody in the room. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for living your life for me. God, I've made mistakes. God, would you forgive me of the pain that I've caused? God, I want to follow after you. Jesus, I believe you are God. Would you save me? God, I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen.